Hello, Duncan Green here with your weekly roundup of uh, posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, all about COVID this week, uh, as you can imagine. Um, I'm in London, which is the kind of a major global hotspot. Nearly a thousand people died over a 24-hour period uh, ending yesterday. It's horrendous when you watch the news. It's very dis- it's very odd because, you know, it's a beautiful spring day. We've been, I've just been running in the park, early morning run, crisp blossom everywhere. It's gorgeous. And, you know, f- there's an enormous difference between people living at home and sort of going for runs and if they've got gardens sitting in gardens and and chatting online to people and so on and the the mayhem that's going on in London's hospitals and and so huge respect we all go out on Thursday evenings and bang saucepans for the carers there's not not that that's much use to them but apparently it's appreciated but there's just it's very odd being in London at the moment anyway I want to start with an apology this week which is that last week I messed up so two I was recording my piece and two minutes in my brother phoned at which point I swore loudly turned off the recording and then re-recorded it all and of course wouldn't wouldn't you guess it I um, uploaded the sweary recording not the proper one and um, it took a hundred downloads before anybody thought to tell me so various of you will have heard me cutting short and saying a rude word apologies for that it's also an apologies uh, a shame because you've missed <clears throat> the biggest ever week on the blog in terms of traffic the week before last because of this uh, enormous Bobby Wine avalanche, uh, the Ugandan reggae star, which took over the uh, the Coronavision song contest in, an, in a really quite funny way. So um, do go back and um, uh, I put the right recording up now and if you've got time, listen to that one. Okay, so as I say, the, the blog is just talking about um, COVID-19 at the moment and judging by the traffic, that's fine with people. Everybody's got, you know, desperate for... Uh, analysis, you know, new new ideas, find out what's going on. So I'm going to carry on um, with a COVID focus for the full, uh, yeah, until you know such time as things have changed significantly. So let's get into the posts. The first was the links I liked, um, and one of the things I'm noticing now over the last sort of ten days or so has been a in- big increase in attention in the media that I read on the impact on low income countries on how governments need to respond, how aid agencies need to respond, and some really interesting thinking, which I linked to on, on, on that post, on, well, the, 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 the sort of response to COVID designed in the North doesn't work in the South. You can't have lockdown uh, in individual houses when people don't have individual houses or when people are living in massively overcrowded slums. So what are the alternatives? Well, yeah, what, what does a COVID response look like if you're sitting in a shantytown in Dhaka? Um, or in a refugee camp um, somewhere. So that's kind of, and I think that's going to become more and more salient um, as the crisis, uh, sadly, the, 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 the virus seems to be moving um, south and is going to become a huge issue in, in, in Africa, Asia and Latin America. So I will be on the lookout for good emerging examples of good practice, of, of people's agency and action, uh, of what's going on, the impact of covid you know, uh, outside the north would be really interesting. The other thing I did was actually the only about the only non-COVID thing I did all week was just note the passing of two real superstars, Tandika Mkandawire, professor of African politics at the LSE, and Martin Kaur, a, uh, a just a indefatigable fighter for trade justice and economic justice 
who set up the Third World Network, and they both died recently, not of COVID. Um, and it's a uh, we should be paying tribute to them, and we're all too caught up in the crisis, which is a real shame. But I will have stuff on certainly on Tandika at some point in the future. The next post was a really interesting conversation with a bunch of researchers in different countries in the Action for Empowerment and Accountability Research Program, uh, which is led by IDS. Um, I'm on its advisory board. Um, it's got various uh, <clears throat> local research uh, institutions involved, and its main countries, I think, are Myanmar, Mozambique, Pakistan, and Nigeria, but it's, uh, and Egypt. Um, and we just had a sort of check-in about what people are seeing in terms of the COVID response in in these kinds of places and um, it was just you know I, I noted some of the issues in the conversation so one is a lot of public anger anger at the uh, government in brazil anger at the levels of corruption in the covid related contracting in india so you know in, in 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 the uk and in europe there's a lot of talk of solidarity and love and you know we, we need to look after each other in these difficult times that's not what I, that's not what we're hearing from other from many other countries a reminder that conflict continues, you know, big insurgencies, big conflict in these fragile and conflict affected states, places like um, uh, like um, uh, Mozambique and Myanmar. And that that is going to intersect with the effect of COVID, for example, that governments are going to be much more brutal in their response to any insurgency and think they can get away with it. You know, and there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, blaming insurgent groups for, for the virus, just as, you know, the, the government's used terrorism as an excuse to crack down all that so i think it's probably going to sort of um, accelerate or aggravate conflict interesting discussion on gender adding a few extra angles to what uh, has already appeared on the blog on gender in terms of things like uh, gender-based violence things like if everybody's washing their hands uh, in really poor countries that means women having to go even more often to tap stands or walk miles and miles and miles to collect water um, and also in many places, shared childcare is a is a sort of a, a coping mechanism for ma- managing the care work uh, of hard pressed families. That's going to become much more difficult if people are locked down. So just the the more you look at the gender issues, both in terms of impact and response, the more important they become. An interesting observation on social contracts that in several countries, India, Brazil, uh, Pakistan, um, and actually in the US, I think as well, um, there's a differentiation going on where people are much more impressed by the response of local government above sort of states and provinces than they are by national government. And so it would be interesting, you know, we were just speculating that maybe the social contracts that will shift its centre of gravity towards local accountability and local social contracts as, as national governments do really badly in terms of the COVID response. There was an, uh, people noted that <clears throat> there's a, a lot of pressure on civil society organisations to give up all that difficult advocacy opposition stuff and to become welfare channels, and that some are responding because there's lots of money behind it. So that's going it's going to have a dis, sort of a, an influence on on the way CSOs see their role. People were, were surprised by the absence of the private sector as a player in a lot of this uh, from in the countries they were talking about. And then the final one something I think that A4EA has raised which is really valuable and often forgotten in these discussions is questions of psychology so A4EA studies empowerment and accountability and the issue has always been how does fear and danger prevent or change the nature of empowerment and accountability and COVID is exactly the same people are actually very scared I see fear in the faces especially of older people how's that going to play out in terms of what all this means in the end in terms of politics
<clears throat> Next post of the week was by Catherine Marshall, Olivia Wilkinson and Dave Robinson, who sent me a post on religion and COVID. Uh, if you follow the blog regularly, you'll know, although I'm an atheist, I'm really interested in the role of faith in development. And they had a really interesting piece on um, the role of religion in Ebola and the Ebola response in West Africa in 2014. And what does that mean for what's going on with COVID? And it's particularly timely. Here we are. This is Easter weekend. There are enormous fights and rows going on about whether people should go to church. Ramadan is on the way. And and people coming together as congregations is in, incredibly important in terms of social cohesion, in terms of well-being, and also in terms of virus transmission. So just right now, religion's going to be pretty important for the next few days. Um, when they look at Ebola, uh, Marshall, Wilkinson and Robinson said that, that it was sometimes religion was sometimes part of the problem. So classically, you know, burial ceremonies, pastors insisting on laying on of hands, even when it wasn't wise. Um but they were very seldom, initially, they were not involved in finding solutions, and that was a big mistake. So, you know, people trust faith leaders far more than they trust CSOs or government officials. Um, in, in, in the Ebola countries in West Africa, um, faith organizations often run hospitals and clinics, so they're actually going to be on the front line in all this. And as time went on in Ebola, people, the, the, the responders, the aid agencies, the government started to realize that they had to have partnerships and outreach to faith organizations. Uh, for example, for coming up jointly with a protocol for, for what constituted a decent but safe burial was a really sort of big turning point in the Ebola response. But the point the authors make is this is not easy. And that's partly because congregations, religious congregations, often fight with each other. They're very diverse. They're in competition for souls. Um, uh, they're in competition between religions, you know, churches, mosques, traditional leaders. They're in traditional um, healers, rather. They're in competition within congregations you know the, the the protestant evangelicals fight like cats and dogs for for for, for um, the flock so it's not easy sort of who do you relate to and they come up with four lessons about um for people wanting to engage with uh, religion and faith in the in the response to covid one is you really have to understand religious landscape you know this is not a simple thing you've really got to get uh, a, a deep knowledge of how faith different faith organizations are structured how they work how they relate to each other Second one is you need religious actors at the table as equals, not just as a kind of transmission belt once you've decided what to do. So you've actually got to incorporate them in the design of responses. Because of the quite complex nature of the faith system, you need multiple channels for collaboration because you're not sure if things are going to work. You need to try lots of different things in different parts of the country um, and, and feel your way towards something you know, adaptive and useful. And then finally, you need to find good interpreters. However much you try and understand the religious landscape, you won't understand it well enough. So you need to find people who can give you faith literacy. I thought that was a really good post. Um, <clears throat> next up was one of the gurus of thinking and working politically, Graham Teskey, who now works for a management consultant called ABT. He was formerly at the Australian Government Aid Agency and the British Government Aid Agency, and he's, he's always very wise. And he wrote, send me a post on um, COVID and emergency politics. And what he was uh, thinking about was, uh, because governance is his speciality, what will happen to state-society relations in the long run, when the when the pandemic is when the pandemic is dealt with, and we're um, in the you know coming out the other side, what will be the legacy on state society relations? He identifies two strains of commentary on this. One is a very simple one. You know, this is going to be a a, a showdown between democracy and autocracy. Which 
um, uh, those two systems is better at responding and which will garner the political reward for good response. And then the second one, um, uh, which he calls a longer term impact of emergency pol uh, politics, you know, that out of this will come probably stronger states of all of different systems. What does that look like? So for this first strain of commentary, democracy versus autocracy, he looked at Fukuyama and Rachel Kleinfeld um, from the Carnegie Endowment. So Francis Fukuyama had a piece on trust and saying, actually, it's not about autocracy versus democracy. It's actually about trust as the key to success, irrespective of regime type. And that's trust in the state and trust in the political leaders. So the state is the kind of constant government, you know, civil service. So do people trust that the state is going to look out for them and, and do, do what the state advises? And then do they trust the political leaders in particular? And that that will determine um, the success of the response. Rachel Kleinfeld sees three factors feeding into effectiveness. One is, does the system, whatever it is, re rely on scientific evidence? Two is, does it have legitimacy and trust again, citizen trust? And three is, does it have capability? And those three things will interact to decide whether the responses are effective. And then on the global issue, um, sorry, on the longer term impact of emergency politics, Graham talk distinguishes between global and national. On global, it's looking like this pandemic is exacerbating international tensions. Um, yeah, most most notably the, the 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 sparring between China and the United States, which becomes quite petty at times. But also the impact on trade, people closing borders. This is not a crisis which seems to be promoting global harmony or global solidarity. So Graham's saying, will this actually be a long a legacy? Will it will it will it ratchet up self-interest over cooperation, which was already the way things have been going in the last 10, 15 years? Will it make it much uh, even more extreme? And he looks at five governance dimensions which might influence that. So one is the strength of media and CSOs. Another one is the balance of power. This is within countries between executive, legislative and judiciary. The third is um, whether the uh, army and police is under democratic control. The fourth is how strong or cohesive is the nation state? Is there actually a strong sense of national identity or is it quite fragmented and this is going to you know and it's more likely to fall apart under the stress of covid and the fifth is how inclusive is the political settlement which leads on to the national side which he thinks is even more worrying um, and he sees two big concerns on on governance at national level one is the whole sweeping aside of data protection and the massive incursion of the state into uh, grabbing people's data and doing mass surveillance necessary for a pandemic response and very effective in some cases but what happens next will it ever will it will it just say all oh, right covid's over we're not going to do that anymore it seems very unlikely in many situations they will find reasons to want to continue with that encroachment on uh, civil liberties and the another point is what if the state's coercive power it's quite clear that you know states are are at the heart of the response it's states who are giving the instructions what if it loses its coercive power its ability to get people to obey its orders what happens next? Um, and he's got a very thought-provoking table of the sort of potential negative and positive consequences for uh, uh, of emergency politics in the longer run. So I urge you to have a look at that. There's some very smart stuff on the blog this week, I have to say. Most of it, you know, not written by me, I hasten to add. Which brings us naturally to Irene Hout, um, the head of research at Oxfam, who presents Oxfam's second instalment of their big picture response to the, the crisis. Uh, it's a paper called Dignity, Not Destitution, 
nice title. Um, their first, um, they, they, I covered their first part a couple of weeks ago, which was on the public health emergency and public health response. This is on the economic impact and response. And they, 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 <clears throat> they build it around some new, some new number crunching from Andy Sumner and Eduardo Ortiz Juarez at, um, at King's College, who find that um, they look at the sort of different scenarios and say, what will this do on poverty numbers? And they find that there could be a reversal of 10 to 30 years of poverty reduction as a response of the COVID response, which is pretty sobering. So 30 years of hard slog trying to, yeah, by governments and aid agencies and international organizations could be reversed by this one crisis, which is a really, really sort of alarming thought. A 20% fall in GDP, which is at the top end of, of the predictions at the moment of global GDP, would lead to somewhere around 500 million people slipping below the, the, the extreme poverty line, $1.90 a day, compared to 2018. Half a billion people. So pretty serious stuff. The, what Oxfam, Oxfam gets in behind the UNCTAD and a uh, proposal that developing countries uh, are going to need $2.5 trillion. That's $2,500 billion, a lot of dollars. Um, and uh, Oxfam suggests that, that, that you can do a trillion of this in debt relief, a trillion of this in special drawing rights, which is the IMF has this essentially, I think, a currency called SDRs, special drawing rights, and they can just emit them and governments can borrow them and use them to spend. And that's kind of um, it's a kind of way of printing money globally. And, and um, so the IMF has been asked to reflate the global economy by an issue of a trillion dollars of SDRs. And then a big step up in aid, $500 billion in aid, including a big increase in social protection. And it does feel like if you compare with 2008, 2008, a lot of countries didn't have social protection schemes, safety nets in place. And the argument from 2008 and the financial and food crisis then was we need to get these in place. Many more countries have them in place and they're proving incredibly useful in terms of the response. So this could be the sort of coming of age of social protection as a universal, essential part of how you run a country, which would be one positive legacy of what is otherwise a horrible crisis. So on that attempted silver lining, I will say goodbye and see you next week. Uh, and if you've got good things emerging from developing countries in particular on uh, COVID response, on people's responses to what's going on, do let me know. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Bye.